Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton. And today, I'm joined by podcaster, writer, and filmmaker, Emily Gagne, and the managing editor of Dread Central and podcaster, Josh Korngut. Depending on who you talk to, the 90s were either the greatest decade for horror or the absolute worst. Coming out of the 80s, a decade which made us gory gluttons because of the home video horror market, and it gave us the birth of multiple beloved horror franchises like Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th, you can see why the 90s horror landscape could seem like a bit of a letdown. Although 1999 is the year of The Blair Witch, The Sixth Sense, The Mummy, Deep Blue Sea, Lake Placid, and one of my favorites, Audition, the reason I think so many people dislike late 90s horror is the feeling that it's already retreading familiar ground in a PG-13 friendly way. It's also the beginning of the great horror reboot boom that very, very few people look upon fondly. Josh, you run the Fantastic Development Hell podcast for Dread Central, so you know your horror history. Uh, can you walk us through why Hollywood started cycling through old properties so hard at the end of the century? Because it seems like this started with um, like the ill-conceived experiment of the Psycho remake, which was like the shot-for-shot remake Gus Van Sant did in 1998. Is that right? I mean, that sounds right to me, which is surprising because I don't think that Psycho remake really pulled in that many dollars. But afterwards, we started to get slowly but surely a whole slew of them. I personally think that The Ring 2002 was one of like the Mm -hmm. biggest moments for the reboot remake trend but you're definitely seeing it a little earlier with dark castle and i don't know about you guys but i am a big dark castle fan and dark castle originated with a movie that we're going to be talking about today late 90s and they would go on to produce a number of classic remakes based on 1950s 1960s horror movies and then i guess the trend just kind of snowballed from there I think what was so interesting about the reboot idea was they're like, we're going to make them darker and grittier, but we have to make them for a wider audience. So they're not going to be as bloody and they're not going to be as fun. And it's a really weird combination that I think really defines the time, but also doesn't necessarily work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a couple of them that straddled that PG-13 line. And I think they really succeeded when they went harder when they were gory and outrageous, like the movie we're going to talk about today, or at least one of them. (laughs) But when you saw those PG-13 remakes, I I think those didn't do as well, and we don't remember them fondly. One of them that's coming to mind is The Uninvited, that remake of A Tale of Two Sisters. Stuff like Mm -hmm. that just didn't feel as inspired to me as when they got to be a little bit more nasty. I found it interesting you brought up The Ring as one of the more successful uh, remakes, which uh, it certainly is. And I think what's so smart about it is that even though they add CGI, it's significantly more subtle. Um, But really, there's not a lot of changes from the original. And I mean, Gore Verbinski, we've talked about this previously, is smart enough to not change what the video actually looks like. It's shot for shot the same thing. He just adds white people. (laughs) I actually find... You know, that movie is, I think, PG-13, but that video, the video itself from The Ring, pretty gross, pretty scary. Scary You have that moment with the the fingernail. I actually can't watch it because I have, like, a fingernail aversion. A lot of people do. I think it's a pretty global thing. (laughs) (laughs) And they get it in there so fast. Yeah. It's... Yeah. I love it. Did you ever have the VHS of The Ring? Because they had the video at the start of before the movie played. And I remember like showing my friend at home and I was just like, just watch this and then we'll watch (laughs) this movie. And then I was like, it felt like you were automatically cursed immediately. I mean, you were. Um, No, I didn't have the VHS. And I bet you that was like one of the last mainstream VHS releases. So good for them. But I do have a memory of me and my 
nerdy friends making a VHS copy, like pulling the video just for VHS. And we like delivered it to my other friend and we thought we were so spooky, but she knew it was us. So... <laughs> Oh, well. We're going to talk about it uh, a lot, actually, in 1999, including on the television show. But this is the year where internet marketing really became a thing. So, like, The Matrix had a really big campaign uh, for the Super Bowl where they sent people to a website, www.whatisthematrix.com. The Blair Witch uh, is mostly built on the mythos that this is something that actually happens. So when you went to the website, you would go and, like, they didn't have trailers or anything. They just had, like, all this missing person stuff and more about the the lore behind it. Um, they also made a documentary for TV. Galaxy Quest did the same thing. Emily and I are actually going to be talking about Galaxy Quest later. You'll hear about it in that episode. But uh, House on Haunted Hill and Dark Castle, from what I understand, uh, also had really interesting websites. And this is really the start of using the internet for that kind of experiential marketing. Oh, I think I have a vague memory of House on Haunted really? Hill. Emily, does that sound familiar? The, yeah. the website? I don't know, but I can absolutely see you cruising that website when we were oh, that yeah. age. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Finding my life partner there you know it's just a very important yes place. <laughs> well that sort of experiential marketing is something that uh, i mean i could only imagine what william castle would have done with that technology but we're going to talk about him in a minute so before we get into that we're going to have a look at the haunting and one could argue that the perfection of the 1953 book the haunting of hill house with its unreliable narration style and slow suspense building would be tough to translate to a film in the first place but 1963's version of the haunting is a Stone Cold Horror Classic. It's also a virtually bloodless and boobless story, meaning that a PG-13 rating to pack in the kids could be guaranteed. Not to mention advances in CGI technology could make the house literally come alive in the way the 63 version couldn't. And that's what people want from their haunted house movies, right? Yandabont, famed cinematographer of Die Hard and Basic Instinct, and director of Speed and Speed 2 and Twister thought so. He was like, who needs a slow burn when you can take away pendulous dread and replace it with an actual head-smashing pendulum. And thus, 1999's The Haunting was unleashed on the public. How did the abandoning of the plot and the introduction of the intense set pieces work out? Well, let's get into it. Emily, you were looking forward to this one. I love the book and I love Shirley Jackson in general. She's actually been like a late to life discovery for me, but like I literally think she is like she is my author. Like I she gets it for me. And what I like about Shirley Jackson is that she's so subtle in her scares. Like it's like stuff is a little bit mysterious and it's also like grounded in reality, which makes it extra scary. The thing about this movie, I like a lot of <laughs> elements of it. It's not so grounded in reality and it's very big, which makes it its own like beast. And I think that on its own, I enjoy it. But I think as a sh like adaptation of Shirley Jackson, I, I have some issues. <laughs> all right. Well, this version, like we said, is different from all the other versions. Could you uh, walk people through the plot on this one? In this version, it's a group of insomniacs. But basically, there's sort of a group of individuals that are invited to this uh, incredibly haunted house as part of an experiment. And uh, one of them, who's a repressed and, and grieving uh, single woman named Eleanor, ends up being extremely drawn to the supernatural happenings of the house, to the point of possession. And in, in this one in particular, it's about will she ever be able to leave Hill House after visiting or is she doomed to sort of haunt the walls like many other women and children that have either died or murdered been murdered at this home that was really good um yeah i really appreciate you brought up like the emotional nuance and subtlety because this approaches that from a different angle because both the book and the 63 version of the movie are actually about the women and about mm -hmm. the um relationships between them and yes this is a woman grieving but it's also a book very much about sexuality and the fact that eleanor is quite possibly gay and just doesn't know it. And Theo is very much aware of herself as a sexual being who is attracted to women, possibly also to men. But the issue I have yes. with the movie, as it puts the focus on the kids and this whole I have to save the children plotline, is that they keep Theo being bisexual, but they make it like a performative bisexuality that feels like a very 90s thing. What do you guys think? You know, I agree with it, but some as, as a queer guy, sometimes I'm just like excited to get what I have. And so <laughs> when I fair. see her, when I see the queerness in this, I just sort of, I, I, I turn a bit of a blind eye and I'm just so excited to see them so gay together. Because <laughs> true. there are moments of, you know, pure gay in this movie. I, I think there could be more. Like, that's my only argument is <sighs> so I feel fun. like uh, Theo, who's played by Catherine Zeta-Jones, is like, like 
overtly by or like pan like she's like girlfriends boyfriends husbands what like she just whatever. like whatever <laughs> yeah. i'm into it in my prada boots well my, my boyfriend thinks so my girlfriend doesn't we could all live together but they hate each other She's a sexy river in this. Yeah, like she's up for anything. And I feel like there is the sort of touch of her and and Nell sort of having something. But like what I wanted to know what you guys thought, like I kind of was reading this adaptation as like sort of like conversion therapy, like 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 she has been converted to being living this heteronormative lifestyle with like Hugh Crane and all these children that have died at the house. Wow, that's so fascinating because when I was watching it this time, it really struck me the whole like her needing to protect the children and that being a very heteronormative lens. So I think that the reading of this being a bit of a conversion therapy camp, it could it's legitimate. Okay, let's get into, as we're sort of talking about it, the differences between the book and the movie. Emily, do you want to walk us through that a bit? Yeah, I think in every version of this that I've seen, like Eleanor is always sort of like this like woman that has only had so much life experience, except maybe the show. The show kind of takes a, a different approach. But um, here, it's sort of like she's lived with her mom, you know, for a long time and taken care of her mom and hasn't really experienced life outside of... Um, that sort of cycle of uh, trauma and grief. And uh, and here she's like going on this adventure. Um, in, in the original one, I feel like she's going on an adventure for the first time. Like And, and even in um, this one, I guess it is an adventure, but it's more of like a choice. She's like, I'm going to go mm-hmm. on this adventure and I'm going to try this out. And in going to Hill House, she experiences things and sort of accepts this supernaturalness into her identity almost accepts her fate whereas i feel like in this one she like is like i'm i get invited to do this study so i'm gonna go and it's it's a little bit passive at the start but then it sort of takes on an active role she takes on an active role in investigating this and then she sort of makes this choice to stay there with the kids but I, I, I really don't like that it's about the kids like and and maybe that's just as a single woman who doesn't want to have kids i like i just find that really weird and and almost like offensive because I think what I loved about Eleanor is she's just a single woman that like is damaged and I feel like maybe has like some suicidal tendencies to her which is something they really investigate in the series and I feel like here it becomes this like she's a savior for the children thing and and that's weird they didn't do her any justice in this one at all and I think yeah the whole matriarch element yeah, really rains on the parade. Well, how much of that do you think is due to the casting of Lily Taylor, who I want to be clear, I'm a huge Lily Taylor fan. Uh, her in Say Anything, her in uh, I Shot Andy Warhol, like she's always fantastic and she's always bringing 100% to the role, which she's doing here. She's acting the shit out of it. But my thing is I'm like, they almost tried to make her like a 90s style, buffy, strong woman, but they're trying to mix it up with this like element of vulnerability. And I don't know if it works in her performance. Maybe it's just the script, but I feel like her casting in the performance is just fundamentally not quite there. What do you guys think? Oh, I fully disagree in, with with all the love in my heart, I think. I think the casting in this movie, pretty good, pretty, like, I I would agree with it, especially in the term, especially with Nell. I think that under the right circumstances, in my POV, she's like the perfect choice. I think it was everything else that falls apart and doesn't allow her to do it justice. But I really like her and I really like Catherine Zeta-Jones in these roles. Are you thinking specifically about the way the CGI sort of manifests and the fact that we're in the early phases of that people have nothing to act off of, that they're acting against tennis balls at this point? She is running around a room in circles for half of the movie (laughs) after nothing. Yeah, the movie just unfortunately doesn't work across the board and that includes the effects and that includes its, you know, its writing, depiction of women, everything. But I do see this actress as someone with a lot of vulnerability in her eyes. I think she did it really well in The Conjuring. I think she did it really well. Is it Six Feet Under where I remember her from as well? I think she really is a tragic figure. Like there's something tragic about those eyeballs. But yeah, she wasn't. She just was not given enough. I like, I mean, I like her too. She's just, she's an excellent actress. And I, I think she kind of works here for me. But I think the writing it doesn't help 
her is what I what I feel. I do think like Julie Harris in the 1963 one, she is she played Eleanor in that one. She is a little over the top too, and I feel like maybe Lily like was pulling a little bit from that in this performance as well, which I I don't mind Nell being over the top cuz I think Same like, she's dealing with a lot of stuff. <laughs> like it's really scary that like message welcome home Eleanor. Like I'm <laughs> at- yeah, it's like uh Thank you. Well, I think part of the issue is, despite the 1963 version, which is basically as close as you can get, um, this is unfilmable. And part of the reason is that so much of it is told from the point of view of Eleanor in uh, narration, in the first person, and talking about her feelings. And so we kind of get lost in her own thought patterns as she starts to get lost. And it's that's what adds to the atmosphere. And they do that through voiceover and narration in the 1963 version of the movie. But when they do do that here, it's really weird and cheesy. Like there's moments where she's confronting all these like zoeotroped mirror versions of herself that are all weird. And and she's all like, no, that's not me. And it comes off as cheesy as opposed to insightful. And I think that's the fundamental flaw of this movie. Well, I was reading like and Josh, I, I don't know if you knew this, but like that, like him and Stephen King were developing this as an as an adaptation, which makes sense because we like Stephen King loves Shirley Jackson, as many of the horror greats do. Um, and I could see him wanting to like make a version of The Haunting, but I guess he made Rose Red instead. And so that sort of fell apart. <laughs> Um, and I wonder uh-huh. if if Stephen King had still been involved, what this would have been like, because I think it would have been a little bit more faithful to the book and and to the mystery. Like, I think what really doesn't work for me in this adaptation is like, I don't as much as it's kind of like a cool, scary storyline to be like Hugh Grain was like killing children and putting them in the fireplace. Like, yeah. I'm just like, I don't need that extra element to be scared of this house and i think like what is so scary to me about hill house is the mystery of it is like why exactly like we know that there's a history of hugh crane being a bad man and that sort of permeates the the house and the walls but i i don't know Mm -hmm. that i need it to be like that extreme to still be scared and i and i i don't know if i need every single answer i feel like that's what shirley jackson does so well is she doesn't give you all of the answers she kind of lets you fill in the blanks and then your imagination goes wild i agree with um Becky to some degree that it's sort of an unfilmable book unless you take some liberties. And I'm okay with people taking liberties, adapting this very heady, very strange book. Like you need a little bit more action than what are on those pages. I love those pages, but like you adapt that directly. There's a good chance you're going to make a snooze fest if you don't do it right. Um, And I think, you know, they did it well with the haunting um, television series they did not do it well here. It kind of has the mummy 1999 vibe a little bit, but like, I think they could have done it well with killing kids and putting them <laughs> in the fireplace. They just didn't. Yeah. But when you add in the kids, what you're taking away from the story and what's interesting about the actual story, which I think they missed the total point of, is that, as we mentioned, this is the story of a woman having a serious mental health crisis. Yeah. But it's also about the resonance of these experiences within this house, because there's a point that I don't think is in the movie here, but it's definitely in the movie in 1963, and it's a great sequence. Hugh Crane's daughter died because she had a companion quote unquote, we all know what that is now code for, who didn't come to her age because she was off uh, canoodling with a man. And so you're dealing with, again, these issues of sexuality and betrayal, which Eleanor is clearly coping with. And I think the fact that you didn't see that's what's interesting about this, that you had to add kids, makes it wrong and I think what I'm saying is I really want this movie to be gayer. I want it to really embrace its gay. Yeah. I would have loved it to be gayer too. I think you're right. The kid stuff is uh, terrible. It's just like ruins the whole energy. But there's a little bit of like a bluebeard energy too. Yes. Like, mm-hmm. Oh, she saw it happen. So she had to die too. So maybe we should have had ladies in the fireplace. I don't know. I want I want dead dead people in that fireplace. Though. I, like I think the we fireplace. could have done that well. The fireplace is a cool image for sure. But I, yeah. <laughs> Just a bunch of women that he's killed. Like, yes, yes. Spooky, angry, dead ladies. And they're going to come back and haunt them all real good. Yeah. 
All right. Well, part of the issue might be this is too many cooks uh, because the process that this came to the screen, as you mentioned earlier, this was originally developed between Spielberg and Stephen King. But what happened was is that Yann DeBont was finishing up Twister and he was supposed to do Minority Report next. However, Tom Cruise became available for a very short window of time and they really, really wanted him for Minority Report. So Spielberg, who was producing everything, because of course that's what he does, he came to Yann DeBont and said, look, why don't I take over Minority Report and I'll do that because we really want Tom. You finish Twister and then when you're done Twister, you go take on The Haunting. And that's what went down. But it seems like, like Spielberg does, you know, he showed up on set, he gave a bunch of script notes, he directed a bunch of second unit stuff allegedly, you know, that poltergeisty sort of thing. He's the one who apparently he was playing with one of his daughters and his daughter put like a, a blanket over her face and you could see the outline. He was like, that's freaky, let's put it in the movie and called them yeah. up and that's why like you have the kids' faces going through the sheets. Uh, I don't know. I mean, Yandabon is not an amateur by any stretch of the imagination, but maybe he was listening to a lot of people and that's where the story really got muddled. Yeah, that's interesting. I like I'm a twister stan, but I will admit that I was rewatching it recently and I was like, I don't know how to explain the plot or like what exactly is happening with those little balls that they like put into the (laughs) tornado. Like I was like, I've seen this so many times and I'm not sure. So I totally think he's not in it on the story. And I will say some of the things that I actually do like about the haunting is like some of the some of the shots. I know he was not the cinematographer on this, but obviously as a cinematographer, he would have directed the cinematographer in a specific way. I actually think the first cinematographer of this left because of quote unquote creative differences. Never, never a good sign never a good first step but like like thinking about how the house looks really massive because they use those lenses that make those really wide lenses or whatever like when she's on the bed and the bed like comes to attack her it looks so scary and like it's looming over her and i think that stuff works but the story doesn't work at all and um i'm sorry i'm sorry yan like i mean i'm a stan i'm a yan stan (laughs) But maybe not for the hot take. Well, I love that Tori Amos song in Twister. Big fan of that movie. But the way that this movie looks, it just all kind of looks like it's shot on a big, like, soundstage. Nothing about it feels intimate, even though the house is supposed to be large and looming. It doesn't have that haunted, spooky house, Guillermo del Toro's, like, foyer vibe that I think they're really trying to go for. And it lacks its spirit. Sorry to say it like that. The production designer on this was Eugenio Zanetti, and his last movie was What Dreams May Come, which Mm -hmm. I also remember finding very beautiful, but very surreal, impressionistic, painting-y. And it gives this house this intangible quality, um, which could be spooky, but it just makes it, because of the CGI as well, things just don't feel real. Yeah, it's dead behind the eyes a little bit. Yeah. Everything. So, like, it doesn't even feel like there's furniture in the room. So Ugh, there's a plot point. I know I keep going back to this in the book, but there's just so many good things that do translate easily. So there's a plot point in the book and they don't do it in the 63 movie either, where Hugh Crane deliberately built the house wrong. He was inspired yeah. by the Winchester house, which if you're not familiar with this, uh, it was built where like all the measurements are just slightly off. So everything's supposed to feel weird and out of scale and you're supposed to be disoriented. That's what he did with this house. And that's why people keep getting lost. And so it adds to that quality of, is this all in her head? Are there actually ghosts it's such an easy thing to do i mean you either just have someone say it or like you show someone with like a tape measure kind of being like look this side of the room is like two inches shorter so we all feel weird and we can't figure out how doors work Mm -hmm. and i really feel like that's a missed opportunity here it's a fun trope that i wish they had succeeded with although i do like that little hallway with like the books in the water that are steps (laughs) i was like I would love that hallway. I want to build that hallway for myself. Yeah, but I feel like those moments like are also the like room of mirrors or whatever. Like they're giving a little <laughs> bit like fantasy. Like I was thinking of the page master when I saw those. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It wishes. Right? <laughs> but it's not so horror. It's like more fantasy. And even that score that's like do, 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 do. Or whatever. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, the carnival. Yeah, it's carnival It's not so overtly horror. Like oh. I don't find this movie very scary in the way that I do find the original story and like the original adaptation, the film adaptation from 1963, I find them all very spooky. And this one feels more like, I don't know, like a, like a cheaper haunted house that uh, isn't as scary, but like is, 
I don't know. Expense was it's not spooky at all, which I don't know how they accomplished that because it's like not hard to make a haunted house movie spooky. I remember even as a kid where I was scared of everything happily. I remember being like, hmm, no, this isn't scary. Well, one of the few critics who defended this film was Ebert. And he talks about, yeah, the story is a complete mess. But he really praised the visuals and thought everything was really cool, which is interesting because Janet Maslin really picked up on the fact that this was like a CGI fest. And she said she felt like she was waiting for the flying cow from Twister to go across the screen. And I kind of got that same vibe. Cartoonish. I remember, not the time, but this time especially, when you see like the little ghost going like through the curtains, oh it's like very Casper, <laughs> very like round of the edges. It's like nothing real about it at all. It's very silly. All right. Well, before we move into our next segment, uh, I have really been taking these moments of Ebert's snarkiness and trying to highlight them at the end of segments. Ebert has a fantastic comment about the Owen Wilson character, and he says, Owen Wilson as the guy asks obvious questions and helps tug open doors. <laughs> God, I love when he gets catty. (laughs) All right, when we come back, we are going to be looking at a movie that features an Academy Award winner giving one hell of a performance. It's The House on Haunted Hill, and that's coming up after the break. Where the haunting played it pretty straight for its scares, the house on Haunted Hill had a more campy tradition to play with, or should I say, a more castle tradition. William Castle was the king of the gimmick, and in his 1959 version of the story, featured the one-two punch of the mustache-twirly goodness of Vincent Price, as well as a plastic skeleton that would zoom around the theater on wires, shocking patrons at key moments. The 1999 version keeps the camp and adds Nine Inch Nails imagery, and it is, in my opinion, all the better for it. It also gives Academy Award winner Jeffrey Rush the opportunity to twirl his perfectly pencil-thin mustache in a stunning impersonation of Mr. Price by way of John Waters. Now, this was one of the first horror movies I saw as a young person with my own money, so perhaps I am a bit biased, but does this hold up for you, Josh? I I don't know if I should admit it, but it's probably one of my favorite movies of all time. Also for the nostalgia factor, I was around 10 when this came out, and it felt edgy, and it felt creative, and it kind of felt like nothing I had seen yet as a horror fan back then. And Dark Castle, the label that sort of, this was its coming out party, would continue that style for a few years, and it had a big impact on me as a creative. All right, well, before we go any further, let's spend a little bit of time on the plot. Josh, do you want to walk us through it? Well, this is a remake of the 1959 film House on Haunted Hill, a classic setup. You have a group of mysterious strangers, all with a checkered past, getting a very mysterious invite to a even spookier house on a big scary hill. And they show up and they have a very strange host who has set up a bit of a game for them. If they can survive the night in the spooky ooky house, they will each receive a big cash prize. I believe in the remake, it's a million dollars each. And if only one person survives the night, they get all of it. So five million bucks. So that's not a bad deal. Which even a million bucks in 1999 does not seem like a lot of money. Like that's like Austin Powers, Dr. Evilly, one million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I was thinking about it. It was like, I would risk it all to spend, <laughs> but mostly just for the opportunity to get in a spooky house. Yeah. <laughs> I would pay five million to do it. But yeah, so you've got these five, you get a bunch of strangers and you have, Uh, two hosts, a mysterious host of the evening and his wife. And they have a very contentious relationship and we're not totally sure what's going on there. And in the original, you said it it was uh, Vincent Price. And here we're seeing Jeffrey Rush. It is shocking how well he is pulling that off. Not doing his own thing, but pulling off Vincent Price impeccably. And it's, it's scary. It's like he's back from the grave. Absolutely. No cheap thrills. Genuine journey to the brink of madness. It's cool because, like, it isn't straight Vincent Price. Like, it's not an impersonation. It's like a homage to Vincent Price. (laughs) Yeah. It's Nine Inch Nails Vincent Price, as you said. Yeah, yeah. and I love that they make him an amusement park owner. So there's this extra, like, Scooby-Doo spooky element to it. And that's how you make it 1999, where you got to, like, up the ante. He also does big, scary roller coasters and drop zone-esque rides. And it's very funny. And and all that's park which is the very beginning of the film, you learn that he runs a, like an extreme amusement park and Spike from Buffy is there, yeah. which is a very funny cameo. <laughs> With Lisa Loeb as the anchor person. 
Oh my god, is that yes? Her glasses are different, so you don't. <laughs> that's her. it. Well, that's shocking. <laughs> wow, I want to. I want a prequel or another sequel that focuses on those two. But yeah, that that I don't know how you guys feel, but that intro felt a little tacked on. I feel like a suit was like we need some extreme roller coasters and they like filmed it after the fact <laughs> i don't know i think that's actually a really brilliant script thing because you show that he likes messing with people and that he's really good at it and then you also get the camp factor in it because there's this whole dry eye roll thing of like well why aren't you fixing things like it's it's really <laughs> funny it's a great yeah. introduction to that character there's something about that intro with the with the roller coasters that it just doesn't feel gothic like it the rest of the movie it's does. The middle of the day. <laughs> it's the and middle of the day, it's and there's too like modern. new technology, and I'm like, I get it. It's 1999, but I, just get me to the spooky gothic castle house. Just get me there. This is a very 90s aesthetic movie, and I'm trying to figure out what the most 90s part of it is, like what gives it that 90s feel, and I'm like, is it the tiny sunglasses? Is it Lisa Loeb? Is it Chris Kattan screaming at everybody? That's it. I'm sorry to interrupt you. God damn it! You give me my goddamn check right now! Because I want it! So you give it! What I think makes this so 90s is like the internet part of it where it's like actually the house is using the internet to send the invites yes backspace 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 new line yeah yeah there's a scene where you see there's this list of the guests that jeffrey rush wants to invite and then a spooky ghost rewrites the list and you're like well it's getting good well we all know that unless you're gus van sant you can't just remake a remake exactly down the middle, like just shot for shot, right? There always has to be a neat twist. And what's neat about this one is that in the original version, it's Vincent Price who has this elaborate plan to kill his wife because at that point, apparently divorce was not an option. (laughs) But here it's actually ghosts. And I remember watching this with my sister and being like, is it ghosts? Because the original isn't ghosts. Is it ghosts? And I think that's actually a really great way to go about it. Um, What do you guys think of that twist? I love it. And I especially love it due to who we have directing here, which is Millie Malone. I am such a big fan of this guy's work. Sans Fear.com. This is also the man responsible for Fear.com. But his, his style is so mm, magical and gothic and scary. And it really lends itself really well to this unknowable supernatural quality. And this film does it. There's all this like absurd really macabre imagery throughout the whole thing. And I'm really glad he got to play with that supernatural element. Well, it's him and Dick Beebe. And the two of them were picked for this because they had done a whole bunch of Tales from the Crypt. And this movie is produced by both Joel Silver and Robert Zemeckis, who, of course, were the executive producers of Tales from the Crypt. And there's so much of this stylistically that is very Tales from the Crypt. It's got that color palette. It's got that sense of humor. It's very biting. It's very dark. It's people getting their comeuppance. It's the turns. You keep waiting for the Crypt Keeper to come out and start punning. And it feels like this also needs an extra little bookend. Although the last line of the movie where the two survivors have escaped out a top floor window is pretty funny. Okay, one more thing. How do we get down from here? It gets cerebral too. It gets surreal in a way that I think was brave for the 90s. It was outside of the box and it was doing something a little bit more artistic, a little bit more heightened than any of the other mainstream horror titles are you specifically talking about the zoeotrope scene i am i'm talking about that intro too that animated intro but yeah what you just brought up beautiful and terrifying really bizarre he also happens to direct one of my favorite episodes of a show called masters of horror the mcgarris joint from the mid-2000s he directs an episode there called the fair-haired child or if you know me you know how obsessed i am with it and he brings that really cerebral quality there too it's very magical well while we're talking about the creative staff do you want to talk a little bit about dark castle entertainment wow thank you for bringing this up actually if i'm going to be fully honest with you i would love to have my own podcast called dark castle cast where i just go through all of the dark castle films and remakes of the late 90s early 2000s but yeah dark castle was this imprint of warner brothers uh back in the day i believe it started in 1998 by Joel Silver, I think you said Robert Zemeckis, Gilbert Adler. There was a whole bunch of people involved. I think it started off as a chance to remake really classic 1950s, 1960s horror movies, but bring them into modern times 
give them a bit of an edge, but also be really fun. And I think they really established that. So you have, this is what started it all, House on Haunted Hill in 1999. And then you get into 13 Ghosts, which I believe came out around 2001. And that, I think, really pulls it off well, too. Another Haunted House movie with a bit of an edgier twist, gory as hell, but so fun. They would go on to make Gothica. We also had Ghost Ship, with that incredible intro. And then after that, they kind of uh, lost the thesis a little bit and just started putting out regular horror movies. So we had The Reaping and a couple of other titles post then, but it kind of fell off the map when the DVD boom kind of fell out from under itself. Well, when did that change? Because I know 13 Ghosts is William Castle. And was it just that there wasn't a demand for those remakes anymore? I mean, Gothica is not based on an older horror film, is it? I don't think Gothica was based on anything. Definitely not William Castle. I don't know what happened. If I had to guess, which is what I'm going to do now, is that Ghost Ship maybe didn't perform in the same way that House on Haunted Hill and 13 Ghosts did. Hmm. So they kind of had to steer in another direction. Wow. <laughs> Ghost Ship, I would say, is not up to par with 13 Ghosts and House on Haunted Hill. After the opening. You talked about that intro, and that intro is all anybody talks about. Like, you turn it off after the first 10 minutes. It's the moment. <laughs> We're ruining everything. Watch the first 10 minutes. I write about it on Dread Central every once in a while. And if I, if I want to rile people up and get a, convo- got to get a conversation going, you got to bring up that opening scene. I think the biggest missed opportunity here is the fact that they did do a gimmick because you have to have a gimmick if you're doing William Castle. And what Warner Brothers did is they put together these scratch cards uh, and you could either win money or I guess you would win death. <laughs> um, I know. Well, but deal. I feel bad that they didn't, at least in like a couple places, bring out the skeleton, fly it around or yeah. like do tentacles or, or something, you know, get the gimmick going. I know. Or 3D or smelly smelliness. I don't know why they didn't do why it. Why didn't they make um, a, a video game of this also? Because I felt like watching this, I was like, this whoa. feels like Resident Evil kind of like feel. This is what Resident Evil should Or Silent Hill it kind of feels... even like kind of vibe. I would say yeah. it lends itself to the, re- the first Resident Evil video game where everyone's trapped inside of this big gothic house and you just have to survive all the spooky monsters. Yeah, they don't go the gimmick route, which I think was a misstep. I think maybe they were getting a lot of things right, but they kind of weren't necessarily getting to the heart of Castle, which is the gimmick. But that's okay, because they still did a really good job. And it was followed up with a sequel that's actually okay. Interestingly enough, in 2007, this film received a sequel, Return to House on Haunted Hill, and that had a really solid gimmick. So that DVD, which was, uh, yeah, late 2000s, it was a choose-your-own-adventure. And I think it was one of the most successful choose-your-own-adventure DVD or even streaming era version of something like that. So they, they, they got into the right headspace with the sequel, but they didn't do it first time around. Oh, yeah, I got really excited about it. And I read it and I was like, was that good? But it's good. Get your hands on it because yeah. it's fun. Yeah. Right, because the advertising was like, you decide if they live or die. Like, it, <laughs> yeah, was, yeah. it was really intense. And apparently there's like 92 different options of, of things they you do can it. do. Like, that's really put together. Because you'd assume that they wouldn't. You'd assume that it would kind of be half-assed, which, you know, like most things in the late 2000s are half-assed. No one can see it, but Becky has the biggest jar of water. <laughs> it was really in- aspirational, and I really want one myself. Yeah, And um, as someone who hosts a podcast all about horror movies trapped in development hell, I have to note that there was going to be a third one. Mm. I forget what the title was going to be, something silly, but it never happened. I mentioned a little bit earlier, but in the late 2000s, even heading into maybe the early 2010s, the DVD market disintegrated. And a lot of these cool in development Dark Castle direct-to-DVD films, like a sequel to House of Wax, fell apart. But I would have loved to see all those. So what exactly happened to the DVD market? Because I would make the assumption that it would just transfer directly to the VOD market. It didn't. So with the invention of the internet, with the invention of pirating videos and downloading Mm. and the accessibility of films in that way, you didn't need to rent or buy or purchase DVDs anymore. We weren't, we weren't shackled to Blockbuster anymore. And 
there was this in-between stage of DVD and video and then eventually streaming where all we kind of had was like illegal downloads. Mm. And in that era, because people were not buying physical media anymore, this whole direct to video market disappeared. And there was so much content coming at us that way. I think it has evolved even into like a bigger ocean of content now that we have streaming services that have now act as a direct-to-video market in a way. But um, there was a whole era where we didn't have any of that. But um, because we were downloading stuff illegally, um, they just didn't have the the budget for those smaller features anymore. That's so weird to me because it's just kind of the nature of the industry where like if you want to make a quick buck, you make a genre film, you make an exploitation film, you make something gory and and chinwaggy and and, and just wild. Um, And it seems so strange to me that there was a time where that wasn't the case. Yeah. I mean, you were still getting people into theaters because you couldn't necessarily take, you couldn't necessarily download that experience in the mid 2000s. (laughs) But um, no, those smaller budget, those sort of, yeah, cheaper uh, make a buck moments. Yeah, those those kind of disappeared. And generally those, you know, everyone knows direct to video 90s and 2000s movies, they sucked. But there were gems in there, Mm -hmm. too, that we lost out on. Also, I like all the bad ones, too. Well, let's talk about the quality of this one, because clearly there's money put into it. We previously talked about Greg Nicotero being behind the Day of the Dead uh, special effects. Also, like he's one of the Walking Dead co-creators. So this looks fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yes, this one looks great. And I think you said it earlier. It's because it's a bit of a mix of like digital with practical and it really it it holds up well what this taps into is that like late 90s early 2000s uh imagery that like as you mentioned earlier nine inch nails uh (laughs) tool was doing a bunch of these sort of videos uh i'm not going to say the m word because we don't need to talk about them on this podcast um yeah but it's an imagery that I really love because I was growing up at that time. <laughs> and it's so funny. It's just like, here's a bunch of creepy stuff and it's in sepia tones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember, in the, I think it was the mid nineties. Me and my dad sat down to watch like a string of heavy metal music videos that were all in claymation. I don't know why that happened, <laughs> That's so cool. but it really, it really messed with my head. <laughs> and so since then I've had a really uncanny Valley relationship with claymation and it really scares me. So when people actually use claymation to be scary, it's like, whoa, good for you. I love what you're doing. American Horror Story owes a debt of tribute to something oh, like Asylum? this. Asylum? Asylum is this movie. I never thought about it, but you're both so right. But this is a movie that easily could have just relied on uh, jump scares. And instead, it creates this whole aesthetic and has some like really genuinely cool, creepy moments that are like creepy over and over again. Uh, so, for example, one of my favorite moments is the woman with the handicam that's going around looking for like her scoop. And she's mm-hmm. in the surgery room. And, and when they put the camera up, you can see that it's all these surgeons doing, you know, gross surgery. And you put the camera down, they're gone. You put it back up and they turn and they look at her and you're like, ah! <laughs> that's so freaky. I'm going to just grab the person next to me and hopefully they'll kiss me. And that's the point of that scene. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. with that having been said, we, of course, do have to talk about the last moments of this and it is CGI but it's a different kind of CGI Ah, we said Ghost Ship has the best 10 minutes is this the worst 10 minutes of a movie is this like a total letdown for you I okay I don't know how you feel Josh but I that was my least favorite part of the movie like when it's like her face in the the cloud of the darkness I don't know (laughs) like it kind of lost me a little there personally uh, but did you like it? I feel like yes. I'm. I've. It's never been something that I like. Hold on to with something about this movie that I liked. But when I watched it again recently, I, yeah, I liked it. I thought they. I thought it kind of worked. It doesn't hold up in the same way that a lot of the practical effects in this movie hold up. But there's something about it that doesn't necessarily feel, feel CGI. It kind of almost has like a two-dimensional. It's rotoscope. That's why it's a bunch of dancers. Yes. And that's why you're seeing yes. all these like mostly naked women undulating through it. Yeah, it feels like that. It feels like a late 70s, like trying. It feels almost pre, pre-CGI energy. And because you're getting some physical energy in there, it's spooky. And I like the way that it speaks to them. And I like the way that there's like a film over the spirit's faces that lifts really gross every time someone gets to speak. I think I'm giving it a little bit too much credit, but I like 
the I like the darkness or whatever. You're allowed. And I love the scene where it gets unleashed too. You're, so yeah. You're allowed. Yeah. You're allowed to like it. I knew I, I think knew I like you it. were gonna I like, I like it, it, but I I was like, mm. it's it's so goth for goth. It is. It, it is goth for goth. It is. And also, like, I feel like Josh has like a fear of falling into the sky and like the mm-hmm. and the idea of <laughs> of you. the nothingness. So I feel yes. like yeah. it's very much in your wheelhouse of fear. You know, you're so right. The fear of like the eternal or like a void. They really do that well in this because you're not just dying. You're getting absorbed forever into some kind of ink bloody hell and no thank you. <laughs> but what's so great about this is that people even at the time got it. And I mean, a lot of people even at the time looked at that final image and they were like, eh. I mean, you describing it to me conceptually. I'm like, yeah, OK, that's freaky and that's actually really smart. And maybe I need to go back and watch it again. Um, but this just sets up so many incredible images like the one I mentioned earlier. But I mean, they also understood that there needed to be a blend of the camp and the funny and then like this genuine creep ick factor. I mean, even watching Peter Gallagher molest what you think is a dead body is like, oh, okay. Peter Gallagher, no, I know. It is so scary. And there's moments that are scary where they're doing very little. One of the moments that scared me on this rewatch is when um, Bridget Wilson or Melissa, the character, she drops the camcorder and I think they see sort of what's happening to her and all you see is her hand and it's bloody and it's sort of shaking and you hear her screaming. And it's like, oh God, what's happening to Bridget? <laughs> That's a good name for a movie. I miss, I miss <laughs> her too. To I, I miss her very much. I feel like she kind of disappeared because <laughs> I guess she got married and she just went nowhere, but she's so good. I love her. <laughs> I love how you attribute getting married to going nowhere. It's like, maybe that's where she wanted to go. <laughs> well, that, but she, like, when was the last time you saw her in a movie? I don't know where she went. I don't know, but I love her. I know you did last summer. Icon. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, what was her name? A Shivers. Helen a Shivers, Helen Shivers uh, sister. Yes. Helen Shivers' sister. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what her name was, but that's what she is that's, to me. That's her government name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, while we're talking about casting, is Jeffrey Combs 100% stunt casting? Yeah, but in the best way. Do you want to tell people who that is for those who might not be familiar with the actor? Is it? Can I do it, Emily? Is yeah. that okay? Do I get permission? Oh, my God. Jeffrey Combs is uh, makes a bit of a cameo in this film as the evil doctor who uh, like tortured and murdered all of these patients originally back in the day in a sort of the catalyst for why this house is haunted and he's this like uh, very unwell surgeon doctor who is out for blood and like not doing you know his best emotionally and is (laughs) the the, the antagonist of this film but as we were saying this is stunt casting because he was made famous uh because of the film reanimator he plays doctor oh help me out emily Dr. Herbert West Mm -hmm. in Reanimator. And that was what made him famous. And that is a really classic modern horror example of the mad scientist in horror. And so he's getting to pull out the mad scientist sort of energy in this too. And I I think he does a good job. But that's also a really weird bizarre grotesque take on an hp lovecraft story um and this is kind of doing the same thing where like there's the dark ones and the old ones and the ancient ones and there's this like overall power that wants to absorb you mm-hmm. um but i think this does it correctly in that you don't get totally absorbed with the mire you're just there to watch fun terrible things happen to bad people <laughs> yeah you're right um and uh, uh reanimator is a lovecraft story but i always kind of felt like it's one that doesn't it's like a more of a casual one. It's sort of based a little bit in our world and there's not these giant spaghetti monsters in the ocean coming for you. But yeah, there's a there's a spaghetti monster energy in this movie for sure. Before we wrap things up, I just want to bring these two movies together for a minute. So I always forget that The Haunting of Hill House was written in the late 50s. I always think, oh no, it's like way earlier than that. Like the 20s or 30s, they had cars then. Um, but that's not the case. And I think one of the reasons why is the same reason you do not like the fact that this opens in the daylight at a theme park. Mm-hmm. It takes away from the gothicness of it. Do you think it's possible to have a modern day pure gothic film or story oh my god what a what a great question my impulse is no my impulse is no too and i didn't want to say it because it's like 
Every great gothic story that I think of has some sort of mansion. Like Crimson Peak is is one that I'm an apologist for. And that's a gothic mansion. And it pulls off some of those like scenes in the daytime because it's a gothic mansion. You know, I think it's got to be an old place because old places are haunted. They really are. Lots of people have died there, obviously, because it's old. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. If it's a newer place, it doesn't have that history, those ghosts. Right? Because otherwise it's set in suburbia and then you get a movie like Poltergeist and that's not a gothic movie. No, it's not. It's about uh, colonization and <laughs> uh, about cultural appropriation <laughs> and lots of things. I mean, that's a, that's, a great, that's a great movie with another Spielberg hand in there too. Mm-hmm. Like part of the gothic history is that sort of, is that house, that old house and that architecture. Like I, I just... I, I can't think of an example of a gothic story that at least succeeds that's not in a in an old haunted house. I agree with you 100%. And I'm not smart enough to know where the term gothic exactly came from, I could guess. But I think it alludes to a time before right now. <laughs> totally fair, Josh. I feel like we've covered what gothic is earlier on this podcast. But, you know, if not, I'm sure we'll get to it eventually. As we wind up, Emily Gangye, thank you so much for joining us again today. Thank you, Becky. This was a delight. And I always will talk about Shirley Jackson. And just a warning to ladies, stay away from a spiral staircase. It's a dangerous place for a lady to go. Good advice. (laughs) I don't know. Russ Tamblin from the 1963 version of The Haunting of Hill House uh, believed that it was a perfect place for dancing girls. But yeah, that would also be a reason to stay away from them. You're totally right, Emily. Josh Corngut, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was such a spooky experience. Now, would you like to point people towards more spooky things that you are creating? Well, since you asked if you are in to alternative horror histories, you can give my podcast a listen. It's called Development Hell. And every week I uncover a horror movie that never actually got made. And we look into the context behind why it never made it to screen. It's a heartbreaking work of staggering genius. (laughs) (laughs) I would agree with that. He's going to yeah. quote you. He's going to quote you now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're going to be on the art. You're going to be on the podcast art now. It's the name of a novel, so you're going to have to send some sort of kickback to David Eggers. All right. Well, that's everything for this week. And you can join us in two weeks where we are staying in Jara Town. But we have an expert to guide us along. We are going to be joined by Tananarive Du, as well as Emily Gangye once again. And we're looking at Galaxy Quest and Deep Blue Sea. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and the series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial free. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland. Today's episode featured Emily Gagné and Josh Corngut as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagné. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.